Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. So today we are continuing our series on the book of Colossians. Uh, this week we're going to start with Colossians chapter 2, verse the 16, 15, 16. I studied for this message, I promise, don't worry. Uh, but we, we picked up last week, um, we're really picking up a thought from last week, this week, continuing that and kind of developing that thought. But the theme for this series, as we're walking through the book of Colossians, is the supremacy of Christ or the preeminence of Christ. That there is nothing that is uh, more powerful, there is no God that is equal to, uh, that Jesus is all. He is above all. And we'll see that even more in the next couple of weeks. But uh, that is the theme for this series, that um, Paul was speaking directly to some of the issues that was going on in, in the t- city of Colossae as far as other gods kind of encroaching on our Christian faith. And he said, no, no, I want to make something clear. There is not, they're, they're not a smorgasbord of gods you can choose from. Not all gods are equal. There is one God, and it is Christ. He is above all, and he's supreme to all. And so that's the, uh, kind of the ongoing theme that we see throughout the book of Colossians. Um, But let me back up to last week. There was a verse I read last week that I want to share with you again today. It's in Colossians chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 11. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So what he's saying is, um, in that passage is, your heart has been circumcised, so you don't need an outward sign of your covenant with God like they did in the Jewish faith. He says, you don't have to do that as a believer because your heart has been marked. So, um, so he, he talks about this because it was a significant issue in the church at that time. Um, but, but really, that is just part of it. When we look at Hebrew law, there were 613 uh, laws in the Hebrew law that said thou shalt or thou shalt not basically. So we think of the big 10, the 10 commandments, but, but really a Jewish person had 613 laws that they had to observe. And some of you have problems not killing your neighbor sometimes, right? And so you can't imagine all this, all the intricacies, all the different things. And, um, and it was difficult. It was a yoke. It was a burden that most people couldn't carry. I mean, I couldn't do it. And so as a result, they lived in almost constant shame because they couldn't measure up. And really, if we look at, if we look at humanity, we've been adding rules to what God asked us to do from the very beginning of time. If you look all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were doing well. They had been instructed not to eat of the, the fruit of the tree in the garden. And, uh, and Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and he said, did God really say? Is that what he really said? And Eve said, he said that we shouldn't eat of it or even touch it lest we perish, lest we die. And it was interesting because she adds that little phrase, not we shouldn't even touch it. And this is the thing, humanity constantly, um, whether we like to admit this or not, we will add things to what God has said, uh, I think even subconsciously sometimes. And that's not a bad thing that Eve did that, because if you look at it, it makes logical sense. If you're not supposed to eat the fruit, you probably shouldn't touch the fruit, right? And so it makes some sense, but this is what humanity does. We will add rules, we'll add regulations, and this is what we see in the 613 laws. There were things that were, that were put in that when Christ came, he broke many of those, he didn't break the law, he broke the bondage of, that we have in that law. So what we see in the 613 laws is there were ceremonial law and there was moral law. Ceremonial law was in place to make us holy. 
So there was no other mechanism to make us holy, so the law made us holy. If I can fulfill these obligations, if I can do what the law prescribes for me to do, then I will be holy. Um, and the truth is, law can't make us holy. There's one who can make us holy, and it's Christ. So when Christ came, he fulfilled the ceremonial law for us. We don't have to observe that ceremonial law any longer. But there is law that continues from the Old Testament, that's moral law. And moral law is, uh, it's, it reflects the character and nature of God. So this is who he is. So when we look at the Old Testament, we go, oh, the Old Testament doesn't apply to us, we're New Testament. Well, that's true. But there are, there's still moral law that applies to us today. So the whole thing about, um, about thou shalt not murder, that's not Old Testament. That is God's heart. Does that make sense? So we still apply that even today. Um, now, there are things in ceremonial law that talked about cleanliness as far as, hey, you can't touch this item or this item or can't eat this kind of item that, that Christ has done away with. And so what we have to understand is we're not, no longer under the ceremonial law, but we are under moral law. It continues today. So what we have to know is Jesus changed how we worship, but not how we live. So Jesus changed. He, he broke the bondage of ceremonial law in our lives. So this is what they were struggling with in the Colossian church, because they were going, no, 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 we still have to observe all the law. Everything that was written, it's, we still have to observe all of that. And these Gentile believers were coming in and going, no, 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 I can't do that. That's impossible. Uh, I've got to change everything about how I live. I've got to change my diet. I can't, I've got to change how I approach things. There's th certain things I can't eat or drink now. I can't go, you know, all these kind of things. And it was, it was, it was a mess in the church. Um, we love to keep score, don't we? Uh, in, in the Hebrew religion, they would keep score of how holy they were. If you met certain laws, if you met certain requirements, you'd keep score. And... Um, and some of you, maybe your kids are too old. My kids are young enough that they would play sports when they were younger, and it was recreational, recreational, where you, we don't keep score. There are no winners and losers. That means everyone's a loser, by the way, right? There are no winners and losers. We don't keep score. And I go, yeah, yeah, no problem. We don't keep score. And the game would start. I'd be like, oh, one, <laughs> two. And, and at the end of the game, we'd, they'd all give high fives, and they'd all get the orange slices, you know, and the orange wedges, and they'd all high five, and it would, but I would go, oh, we smoked those five-year-old little girls, like, woo, right? We beat them, because we keep score. And even in our faith, uh, we keep score sometimes when we shouldn't. We want to measure up, we want to know how we're doing, and, and this can be dangerous for us, because what happens is we will take things that are helpful and we make them holy. We take guidelines in our lives that, that can be helpful, and we end up elevating them in a place that that we elevate the Word of God. I've talked about this a little from stage before, but um, there's a thing I've got in my life that I, I've just got a, a guardrail that I will not ride by myself in a woman uh, with a, with a, in a car with a woman who's not my wife. I won't do that because I don't want to. I don't want to take a step or go someplace that's going to ever put my character or my, my marriage in jeopardy, and so that's just something I've done. And it would be easy for me, because it's not sinful to do that, by the way. It's not sinful to ride in a car with a woman who's not your wife or have a meal with a woman who's not your spouse, but, uh, but for me, I just feel like it's not wise. But it would be easy for me to look at someone else and go, oh, that guy rode in a car with a woman who's not his wife. What a sinner. I must be better than him because I would never do something like that. Does that make sense? And what we do is we begin keeping score, and we begin going, oh, well, I'm a little more holy because I would never act that way. 
And as a result, it creates this hierarchy that was never intended to be created in our hearts or in our lives. And what happens is uh, we can create a culture that's more focused on behavior modification than heart modification. And what God is interested in is transforming our hearts because he knows if he can capture our heart, if, we, if our hearts come into contact with Jesus Christ and we recognize the beauty of Christ, then everything else will change. But if we just focus on changing what we do, we're always going to be disappointed. We're always going to struggle. So I can become more focused on following rules than following Christ, and at the end of the day, this is just going to produce condemnation in my life because I can't ever follow the rules the way I need to. So this is what we're looking at in the book of Colossians, in this specific passage we're looking at today. By the way, that was just my intro. The rest of it goes faster, don't worry, okay? So don't be afraid. Uh, Colossians 2.16 says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions to food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So what Paul is saying is, hey, these are all religious activities. Uh, they're celebrations. They're things that are important religiously. But if you don't hold fast to them, don't let anyone condemn you for that. But, but let me back up just a little bit too. It would be easy to say, hey, we don't have to celebrate those things because we're no longer under the law, so we're free, but you still are celebrating those things. And so we would look at people like that um, with a little bit of condescension, like we're better than you because we don't have to celebrate those things. And you go, that's right, they could do that, but, but we could do that. Because uh, we could say, oh, some of those churches feel like they got to worship with a pipe organ, but we don't have to do that at our church. We're better than they are. No, we're not. There's nothing wrong with a pipe organ. We celebrate churches that worship with pipe organs. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We can't say we're better than them. We should never feel worse than them. It is just different. And so what Paul is saying is, don't let anybody look down on you because you don't celebrate uh, some of these rituals or festivals or you don't uh, have some of the food or drink. Don't, don't let anyone look down on you because of that is what he's saying, okay? Uh, you should have good standing. Don't condemn yourself because of that. Now listen to this. In verse 17, he goes on to say, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he says, Basically, what he's saying is these things may not have a whole lot of value in and of themselves, but what he says is they're shadows. They foreshadow what is to come. So the Jewish festivals that they would hold, they would, they would celebrate what has happened in the past, then they would foreshadow the coming of this future Messiah in the future. So they would celebrate and they would look forward to. So it was foreshadowing Christ. But what happens is Christ has appeared on the scene. And so if we continue to celebrate Christ as if he hasn't shown up, then something is wrong. It's, it's kind of akin to um, if you're getting ready to have a baby, and it's, especially if it's your first baby, you are doing all the things, you're nesting, you're getting the room ready, you're marking it on the calendar, you're doing all the stuff, right? And let's say the baby shows up and arrives and people start coming over to visit you and they're like, oh my gosh, where's the baby? And they're like, oh, the baby's in the other room. We're nesting. We're getting ready for the baby. And they're like, wait, what? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, the baby's here, but, but we still, we were still nesting. We're still getting ready. We're still getting everything together. And you're like, but, but the baby's here. So why are you still getting ready for the baby? Why aren't you celebrating the baby? Why aren't you cuddling the baby? And they're like, oh well, yeah, yeah, the baby's great. But does that make sense to anybody? This is, this is kind of what this is akin to. So it doesn't mean we should never do it, but we have to recognize it in value. We have to understand what it really means. So these ceremonies are supposed to point to Christ, but if we have Christ, then why do we have to feel obligated to continue in the ceremonies? Let me move on. Verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. 
insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So let me just start with this, these two words. The first thing it says is, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Now, asceticism is um, it's a severe self-discipline. And it can be something as simple as um, maybe fasting. It could be fasting things that, are, um, that, that bring pleasure. So it could be saying something like, I'm going to fast chocolate or sweets, and a lot of people do that uh, for, for Lent. But uh, somebody who is practice, practicing asceticism basically says, I'm going to deny myself anything that tastes good or you know, is delicious. I'm going to deny that. And because I deny that, I'm more holy to God. So it can go from saying, hey, I'm going to fast to, to bring humility to my life, which is called for in Scripture, to become a place where uh, it puts us in better position where we go, I must be holier than other people because they still eat steak. Can you believe they still eat steak? And yes, I can, by the way. <laughs> if you've ever had steak, you know why, right? Uh, and so they go, I can't believe they would still eat that stuff because I'm so holy. I don't even have that kind of stuff. And asceticism can even take it a step further. There are actually sects within certain, um, certain veins of Christianity that, that people will actually torture themselves in order to curry favor with God. So they will, they will mutilate their own bodies in order to show God how devoted to him that they really are. And what Paul is saying is none of that is necessary. Because what we're essentially saying is Christ isn't enough. Christ is not enough to gain salvation because I've got to do something else to go along with that. It's, it's Jesus plus. Jesus plus my effort. Jesus plus my works. That's what saves me at the end of the day. And, and this is what Paul's talking about. So when Paul says, hey, don't let anybody fool you with asceticism that, that you've got to that you've got to torture yourself. Because let me tell you something. The, <laughs> as a believer in Jesus Christ, the world is out to get you. You will have enough problems with the world that you don't have to create your own for yourself. Does that make sense to anybody? The world is going to bring enough punishment on you, or try to, that, that you don't have to inflict any upon yourself. I promise you that. And so what we see here is this false notion that I can somehow, that I can somehow suffer enough to earn the love of Christ. So he says, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. And you go, well, that's just silly. Who would ever worship angels? That's ridiculous. Because again, we have this picture of like a shrine of an angel and we bow down before the angel. But, but really, a lot of historians and a lot of theologians believe that this began with people who, uh, who felt this humility and said, I'm not good enough to be in relationship with Christ. And so because of that, I'm going to pray to angels because they're lower than Christ. So I'm going to pray to angels. I'm good enough to pray to them, but I'm not good enough to pray to Christ. And as a result, it became angel worship. Uh, and, and so, again, it's, it's crazy to me that we would be so prideful to think that our sin is greater than the love of God. I've sinned too much for God to love me. God could never hear my prayers because I'm too bad. But, but yet what we see is God's grace extends to all man. 
All we have to do is accept him. And so what they've done essentially is said, I'm too bad for God to hear my prayers. I'm too bad to be able to be in relationship with Christ. So I'll just be in relationship with an angel. And you go, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, this is the big deal because, again, angel worship basically says, hey, an angel is where I'm going to find my supply, my resources, my hope. The angel is going to take care of my needs. And an angel is a created being. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, Jesus was not a created being. He was there at the beginning. He's part of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Jesus was there at creation. Jesus is a creator, not a created. And so when we pray to anyone or anything that is a created being, we're praying to the wrong one. Jesus is the only mediator for us to God, period. There is no other. And so I, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to offend you, but, but I want to speak clearly and directly. I know there are many people in our church uh, that have come from Catholic backgrounds, and, and I have Christian brothers who would say that the Catholic church is the worst thing in the world and it's horrible, uh, and, but I will tell you, I think there are lots of people that attend Catholic churches that love Jesus and are going to heaven, okay? I want to make that very clear to you. But one of the problems I have with Catholic doctrine is their veneration of saints that we can pray to. Because at the end of the day, they are created beings. They might have been fantastic people. They might have been used by God in amazing ways. But they are not Jesus Christ. And there is one who mediates on our behalf. And it is not any saint. It is no man. There is no person. There is no other God. There is one. It's Jesus Christ. And that is all. So I want to make that very clear. I, want to hope, I hope you understand that. And I don't want to keep condemnation on my Catholic brothers and sisters because I think they're doing so much good in the world, but, but this is the deal. None of, us have, none of us have the market cornered on truth. Just because you go to the Catholic church doesn't mean you're going to heaven or hell necessarily. Just because you go to Summit Church doesn't mean you're going to heaven or hell. Uh, There's some people that think you're going to hell if you go to Summit. But I'm not one of those people, by the way. <laughs> but just because you attend here on the weekend doesn't mean you're going to heaven either. It doesn't stamp your passport. Um, so what we have to understand is it's all about relationship with Christ. There's no other way around that. Let me move on. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 says this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? So what Paul is saying is, again, if, if you've been set free from those regulations, why do you still submit to the regulations? And, and this is one of the things I want you to understand. Sometimes we'll take a verse like this and we'll go, see, I've got freedom. I can, I can live a free life in Christ. I can do whatever I want. Well, yeah, kind of. But that's an immature take. Uh, immaturity would say, I can do whatever I want and ask forgiveness for it later. But what Paul really desires for us is that we'll understand that we're free, but there's still some boundaries that we need to live within if we're going to be healthy. In, in Romans chapter 14, if, if you want to read more on this topic uh, this week, read Romans chapter 14. It'll really help you understand. It'll give you some context to this. Paul wrote uh, Romans as well. And so same kind of, um, this is the same vein of thought that we're in in this passage with Colossians. But, but he writes in Romans chapter 14 and he says in verse 21, it is, not, or it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And that word stumble, it can be interpreted as hindered or weakened. And so what he says, and if you've been around church, you might've heard a phrase like this, hey, I don't want to cause my brother to stumble. Uh, so what Paul is saying is um, we have freedom in Christ that we don't 
We're not held to the same regulations we were before. And some of us, our antenna goes up and we go, good, now I can do whatever I want. Well, that's not the case. Because what Paul says, hey, we've got freedom, but we still are under moral law and we shouldn't do anything. So in addition to moral law, we shouldn't do anything to cause a brother to be weakened in their faith. Um, and so what he's really saying is we should be mature enough in our faith to lay down our freedoms for the good of the people around us. And specifically immature believers or those who are yet to come to faith in Christ. Uh, so so let, me, let me say it to you this way. Um, I do not drink alcohol. I don't think it's a sin to drink alcohol. I don't think you can prove that in Scripture, that it's a sin to, pr- to drink alcohol. I just don't think it's wise to drink alcohol. I don't condemn those who do um, in moderation, but at the same time, I do not. And I don't partake of it, not because I think it's a sin, because I think it's probably unwise. Because for me, what's more important than my freedom or my liberty is maintaining a Christian witness to the people around me. Because there are enough people in my life that have had problems with alcohol, either themselves or people in their family, that I don't want to cause them to have any problems. I don't want to, I don't want to lose my ability to influence them because I am taking advantage of my freedom in Christ. Does that make sense? And so what we have to do continually is lay down our, our Christian liberties, what we have the right to do, to, to do what is right many times. So, so the two questions we have to ask ourselves is, does what I'm doing bring glory to God? And does what I'm doing cause others to be hindered or weakened in their walk? And if, if, if what I'm doing does not bring glory to God, then I shouldn't do it. And you go, well, that's, that's not very broad, is it? Like, <laughs> there's a lot of things I couldn't do. But, but, oh gosh. Let me say it this way. We think bringing glory to God is what we do in this room. We come in, we raise our hands during worship, and we sing some songs, we listen to a message, that's how we bring glory to God. Everything in your life can bring glory to God. Everything. Your life is an act of worship, okay? So um, the media you consume, what you listen to, what you watch, uh, the people you spend time, all these things are part of this equation. And so what you have to ask yourself is, is do the relationships I have, is the things I'm consuming, do the, are these things bringing glory to God? Uh, and it doesn't have to bring glory to God in such a way that the light is shining down on you and everybody goes, wow, can you believe that? Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Is it bringing you closer to God or is it pulling you away from God? And then the second question, is what I'm doing cause others to be hindered or weakened? Is, is what I'm doing going to cause me to lose my influence in someone else's life for God? Is it cause someone else to make a decision that they probably shouldn't make? Is it causing someone else to lose their faith in Christ? And if so, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, I shouldn't be doing it. And this is what you have to understand. Just because I have the right to do something does not make it right. So I might have the right to go certain places or do certain things or have certain relationships, but it doesn't make it right. I can have, I, I can have friendships with all of my old girlfriends because there were a ton. I'm just joking. On social media, I have the right to do that, but is it right? Probably not. I have the right to go drink alcohol if I like. According to Scripture, as long as I don't get drunk, I could go drink. But is it right? No, not necessarily. So there's all kinds of things in our lives that we have the right to do, but it does not make it right to do them. So what we have to be willing to do is lay down our Christian liberties for those around us, for the glory of God, for his kingdom. Verse 21 says this, And he's quoting, he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And these are regulations. 
And it says, and parenthetically, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. So he says, hey, there's these sayings in the law that says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And it's talking about things like um, Jewish people weren't supposed to touch anything that was dead. Uh, they weren't supposed to drink certain items or eat certain things. Uh, they weren't supposed to handle things. And if you did, you would become ceremonially unclean. And if you were unclean, then it was a big deal and you had to do certain things and go to the priest to become ceremonially clean again. And it was, it was a hassle. It was a big deal. In fact, if you were unclean, you, you weren't even supposed to be in contact with people who were clean because then they could be unclean. So what they did is they looked at items, they looked at certain things and said, these are unrighteous, these are common, and if you touch them, then you are unrighteous and you are common. It was kind of like cooties. Does anybody remember cooties when you were a kid? You're like, oh, I touched your cooties, right? Like, oh, wash it off, whatever your, your ritual was. This is how they looked at it in many ways. It was like cooties kind of. Like, so if you touched it, you were unclean. Um, and this is what we have to understand. Um, the law was in place for a purpose. But when Jesus came, he shattered that and said, okay, hey, the, the things that made you unclean before don't make you unclean now, ceremonially, because I fulfilled that law in you. So Peter, the Apostle Peter, he was kind of a bonehead at times. Um, he did some stupid things at times. But um, when Jesus ascended into heaven, when the baptism of the Holy Spirit arrived, Peter was transformed. He became a powerful preacher, did incredible things for the glory of God. And he was kind of, he was one of the main leaders of the New Testament church. And he had a Jewish background, so he was of the belief that if you were a convert to Christ, you needed to actually convert to Judaism. So he was the one, he was one of the guys on the side of the argument that would say, if you're converting to Christianity, if you're following Jesus, then you need to fulfill Jewish law. And remember we talked a few weeks ago, or last week, about the fact that people were coming into faith, and then these believers would go, now you need to be circumcised. And these new believers would be like, whoa, 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 what? Like, wait a second, you didn't, that was not on the uh, form that I had to sign up front. I didn't know that, right? And so it was causing this controversy within the church. And so Peter was firmly on the side of the Jewish believers who said, hey, you've got to conform to Jewish law. And I won't get into the whole story. It's in Acts chapter 10, but he has this moment where God, a divine moment where God sends some non-Jewish Gentile believers to Peter to have this interaction. And God prepares Peter's heart and he sends him a vision. In Acts chapter 10, verse 9, it says this, the next day as they were on their journey, so these people were coming to find Peter and approaching the city, Peter went up on a housetop about the sixth hour of the day to pray. And this was about lunchtime, about noon. And he came, uh, became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heaven opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean because he is a good Hebrew man. He doesn't, he doesn't break the law that doesn't break the covenant because he knows what he should eat and not eat. And so it says in verse 15, and a voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the king was taken up at once to heaven. I said a king, the thing. Um, so Peter has this idea. He says, this is the way it's got to be. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way it's supposed to be done. Right? Does that sound familiar to anybody? And if we do it any other way, it's not right. 
And it took a vision from God and an interaction with, with a Gentile believer that he saw God move in miraculous ways to change his heart. Because he saw in that moment, God said, if I declare something clean, don't call it unclean. If I say it's uncommon, don't call it common. If I say it's justified, don't say it's sinful. And what we have to do is have this moment where we have this shift. Because we can look at this and go, well, that's, that's New Testament. And we're good today. We don't do that kind of stuff. Well, no, churches do this all the time. Because what we do is we'll say, hey, we love everybody at our church. We love everybody. And then somebody walks in and they don't look quite like we do. Maybe they don't dress quite like we do. And again, our dress is pretty casual here at Summit. But I've been in churches. I've served at churches where if, if you didn't dress pretty nice, you probably weren't going to feel very welcome. We wouldn't tell you you're not welcome like this, but you'd feel it. Does that make sense to anybody? <laughs> oh, oh, well, I'm sure Jesus loves you, but he'd love you more if you were wearing a suit, right? <laughs> we're glad to have you, but if you ever come back, we need you to, right? <laughs> and so what we've done is we've put things in place, and we've said, well, this is what we've always done. This is how we do it. And I've heard people say, I had a guy with the one time say to me, he said, because uh, I had to wear a suit every weekend to church, and he said to me, he said, Mel, you know what, Mel, if you were going to meet a king or president, you'd wear a suit. And I said, not if I was his son. Amen. Well, that's a good point. I, I haven't thought about it that way before. But the truth is, if I was going to meet the president or I was going to meet a king or a ruler, I would dress up. But if I was his child, I probably wouldn't get dressed up every time I saw him. I don't think God has a problem with the way we dress as long as it meets those requirements that we're not causing anyone else to stumble, that we're using wisdom in what we do. So at the end of the day, um, I'd probably prefer that you weren't dressing like you're going to Walmart. You know, that's a broad, that's a broad area right there. That could, that could be anything, really. But at the end of the day, I want you to be comfortable. And I don't think you have to dress up. But that's just one of the things. We can even feel holy because we go, well, we don't require people to dress up here. So we're better than the churches that require people to dress up. No. It's okay that they dress up. I don't care if people dress up. But we shouldn't pass judgment on them and they shouldn't pass judgment on us. Does that make sense to anybody? So this isn't just New Testament stuff. This is for us today. Colossians 2.23, last verse, says this. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have, listen to this, they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. So what we see here and what Paul says to the church is, hey, these things look like they're important. They look like they're valuable. They look like they're part of the necessities of what we do as Christians and as believers. But what he says is, at the end of the day, they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. What he says is, they can't change your life. The one thing that changes your life is Christ. Christ is the only one that can break off addictions. He's the only one who can break off habits, that can change our hearts, that can transform us into something entirely different. Behavior modification won't do that. Heart modification will. See, again, everything we do, we drift back to this works-based salvation system where it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus morality. Well, I, I said the prayer, and now I'm going to be really good, and that's enough. Like, I'm just going to white-knuckle it and try harder. And No, you don't need to add anything to Jesus. Your morality does not save you. Your goodness doesn't save you. Your niceness doesn't save you. Your giving doesn't save you. 
just because you drop something in the offering box as you leave, it's not Jesus plus. Your attendance doesn't save you. I'm not saying you stop coming to church. I'm not saying you stop giving. What I say and what I want you to understand is we have to have the mindset that, that Jesus is the one who saves us. And everything is a, is a result of that. In James, he talks about how works, uh, faith without works is dead. But what we have to understand is when we have faith in Christ, when we connect with a living Jesus, our hearts are transformed, and our natural response is what we see in Scripture. That my natural response is, I, I want to give to his kingdom. I want to serve his purposes. I want to become a better husband and a better dad and a better man. Does that make sense? We flip it around and we go, oh, now God owes me because I gave something in the offering. No, God doesn't owe you anything because it's not Jesus plus anything. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Um, in Acts chapter 15, there was something called the Jerusalem Council. And this is when everything was kind of coming to a head with Jewish believers and Gentile believers over Jewish law. And uh, it's interesting at the beginning of, of uh, Acts chapter 15, they make a statement that there were some Jewish believers who said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that was a quote. And then it says in verse 2, uh, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Basically, they threw down with these people. They were mad. They were angry, and they had a, they had a fight. <laughs> that, that just makes me laugh because the Bible makes it sound so nice, right? But Paul and Barnabas, they were ticked off. They were upset. And so they go to this council in Jerusalem. All these different religious leaders were there uh, from within the church. And they have this discussion. They have these conversations. And they come to the agreement that, um, that really they shouldn't do any more than, than become Christian. <laughs> in Acts chapter 15, verse 19, the Passion Translation says, this is what James, he's the brother of Jesus. He's kind of the archbishop of uh, of Jerusalem. He says, so in my judgment, we should not add any unnecessary burden to, upon non-Jewish converts who are turning to God. What he's saying is we shouldn't require them the full letter of the law because that's not what Christ requires. So what he says is we should make it simple for them. We shouldn't make it hard for them. And again, churches make it hard for new believers. We make them jump through hoops. We make them try to figure things out. We speak in code, and hopefully they'll figure it out, and they'll learn our language. But at the end of the day, what James is saying is still applicable to us today. We should not make it difficult for people who want to know Christ to become followers of Jesus Christ. We should help them understand that, that salvation is simple in, in so many ways, that we make it difficult. This is what it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we could be good enough, if I could be nice enough or moral enough to earn salvation, then why would Christ have to give his life? It's impossible. John chapter 6, verse 28 says this. Then they said to him, what must, we, uh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He said, do you want to do all the works? Then it begins with just believing in me, knowing me, making me Lord of your life. Everything else will follow. Romans chapter 10, the apostle Paul writes this. And he says in verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And then verse 9 says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13 on down, it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
This is what we have to understand, guys. Jesus is preeminent overall. There's nothing we can add that can cause us to earn our salvation. He is all. He is preeminent. He is supreme. And if I try to add my works or my effort or my goodness, what's going to end up happening is I'm going to create a dichotomy in my own life where it's about my effort and my works and my energy. And if I will stay focused on Christ, then everything else will fall into place correctly. Let me pray with you. God, we love you and we thank you. And we're so grateful for the love that you have for us that we don't deserve. I'm thankful that you sent your son Jesus to pay the price for our sins, to pay the debt that we owed that we could never pay. And I pray today that we would have our eyes open to the, the free riches of grace that you've given us. God, I pray today we would understand that it is not our own works, it is not our own energy, it is not our own goodness that saves us, but it is only Christ alone. God, I pray today you would, you would open up our eyes to areas that maybe we've become legalistic in. Lord, maybe we've become judgmental in. And I pray that you would help us have grace and extend mercy to those around us who maybe practice their faith a little differently than we do. That maybe they look a little differently than we do. They don't dress like we do. God, help us to extend grace to them and have the same eyes that you have for them. So God, I pray today, Lord, you would change our hearts, Lord. I pray for those that don't know you, God. Let today be the day that you draw them. Let them experience your, your goodness. Let them see the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ today. Let them understand that they don't have to do anything but accept you to make you Lord of their lives. And as they connect with you, as their hearts connect with Christ, things will begin to shift and change, that they don't have to white knuckle it, that you're gonna do the work in their lives. So minister in us today, change us today, transform us. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just wanna ask if you're here today and you say to me, Mel, I'm not really serving Christ, but I know I need to be. Maybe you're like some of the people we talked about today. They're very religious, but they're not really in a relationship with Christ. They think their goodness, they think their church attendance, they think their religiousness will save them. But at the end of the day, you recognize, you know what? Nothing's gonna save me but Christ and I need to surrender my life wholly to him. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna make you come forward. I just wanna pray with you. So if you're here today and you say, Mel, pray with me. I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life. I wanna surrender my life to him. Would you be bold enough to slip your hand up real high where I could see it? And you can put it right back down. Thanks, up in the balcony. I see you on my left. Praise God. Who else would say, pray for me, Mel. Today's my day. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life today. Okay. I would like everybody to say this prayer with me out loud, whether you raise your hand or not. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. And thank you for paying the price for my sins by dying on the cross. Today, I believe that you are alive and well in heaven, interceding for me. Take my life and use it for your glory. Help me never go back to my old ways or my old life. From now on, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, you can take the, uh, the card that's in the seat back in front of you. On one side, it says need prayer. On the other side, it says salvation. And just simply fill out the side of the card that says salvation and drop it in one of our offering boxes as you leave. There's two in the back of the room, one in the balcony, and one outside these east doors. Drop it in there, and one of our team is going to reach out to you in the next day or two. 
get you connected with resources and relationships that are going to help you grow in your faith. If you're watching online today and you made that decision, we're so proud of you. We want to help you take the next step. You can simply text the word salvation to the number 555-888. And so uh, text that to us. Let us know. We're going to get back to you and help you take the next step and uh, get connected with relationships and resources that are going to help you grow. If you're here in the room and you can't reach a card, you can simply do the same thing. Text salvation to 555-888. Here's what's going to happen right now. These guys are going to lead us one more song. We're going to worship God together. And while we're doing that, our prayer team is going to come up, and they'll be on either side of the stage. And if you need prayer for any reason at all, no matter what it may be, as we're singing, step out from your seat and find one of them and let them agree with you in prayer before you go today. And then in just a moment, when we're done singing, I'm going to come back up, and I'll close this out and dismiss us. So why don't you stand to your feet all over the room. Let's worship God together one more time before we go today, guys.